Um, the song that you just heard is written by a guy who's known for his poetic music, which means you kind of have to pay attention to what the words are and figure out what the song is talking about. Some people love that kind of stuff. It was dead quiet in here after that song ended because people were still going, what just happened here? At least, what, here's what you could do. You could fall back on the chorus, right? He was talking about the age of worry, which is probably a relevant topic because we live in that kind of age. And truthfully, that kind of idea runs, it's universal. We've been talking about a guy named Abram. And last week, we told you about how worry had impacted his life. He was worried that he would have an heir. If you, don't, if you doubt me, go look at Genesis 15.3. He complains to God, I don't have one. He was worried about his life being taken in 13, Genesis 13. He was worried about whether he would get wealth, and so he decides to cheat to get it. And you wonder, why in the world is this guy worried? Because right at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, God makes a promise to him. He says, listen, this is what I'm going to do for you. And if there was ever a guy who shouldn't be living with that kind of worry... Abram. And yet, it kind of fills up his life and causes problems for him. So it's kind of fascinating that we get to Genesis 17 and God decides to take this to a new level. He's going to make this agreement with him formal and he's going to establish a covenant. Now, a covenant in this age was a very particular thing. We talked about this with Moses. I'm going to do just a, a quick recap. If you want to understand more on this, you can go back and listen to our Hidden Treasure series to figure it out. A covenant was between two people at this time in history. One was called a suzerain. They held all the power. And, um, and they were giving up something that was going to be really favorable to the vassal. And so they would get together and they would agree on the obligations of this contract. They would both agree to those obligations, and then the contract would be signed, and it would be handed to the vassal. And the vassal would take and, and put that in a safe place, and whenever they were asked for it, they had to produce this. Otherwise, the suzerain could get out of the contract. If you can't prove that we have this, I don't have to fulfill my end of the bargain. And we see that God decides he's going to lay out a covenant between him and Abram. And that's where, we're, that's where we're going. We're going to Genesis 17 where that happens. And it's also why I'm a little concerned. I'm a little concerned about sharing that with you, seeing uh, just the response to the song. But I want to do a quick test just to see if I'm correct, okay? So I want to read a poem for you, and I want to get your reaction to it, okay? This is Emily Dickinson, a famous poet. It's called Autumn. The morns are meeker than they were. The nuts are getting brown. The berry's cheek is plumper. The rose is out of town. The maple wears a, gray, a gayer scarf. The field, a scarlet gown. Lest I should be old-fashioned, I'll put a trinket on. How's that hit you? Okay, let's try. Let's try a different poem. Ready? Roses are red, violets are blue. I puked in your... No, I... What did I do? Yeah, I puked in your coffee and pooped in your shoe. And because it's a cat, you could see him doing it. Right? Now, listen. Um, 
the response wasn't vastly different in terms of your volume, but I was watching your faces. And my unscientific kind of observation is this. When it comes to poetic appreciation, this group comes in right around Roses Are Red, right? Um, it's not that Emily D's a poem is a bad thing. You just have to think about that. In fact, you might actually have to go and look up, put a trinket on. What is she talking about? I didn't even know what that is. And so you're going to have to do some research to get down to the nitty-gritty on that sort of thing. And that, my friends, is the problem with Genesis chapter 17. It is not a poem, but it has a bunch of patterns in the text that make it really complicated. And as soon as I say there's a bunch of patterns in the text, something should come to your mind that we've been talking about when we've been in the book of Genesis. Some of you, if you've been here for a while, you'll know it. Others, it's going to be new to you. But I'm going to use this word, and you're, and you're going to go, oh, that's what it is. There's a gigantic chiasm in chapter 17. A chiasm was a Jewish writing technique that was done by ancient Jews where they put a pattern in the text that you had to read and discover, and it would lead you somewhere. The whole goal of it was to make sure that you would find something to focus on that the writer wanted to make sure, don't miss this. Maybe the best way to describe this is, if you were reading your scriptures today, and you got stuck, you weren't sure what they were talking about with that verse, you could get online right now, and you could find a commentary. You could find 50 of them for free, where somebody has said, I think this is what's going on here. This is how it links to the, all the rest of the scriptures. And you, and you could get a whole bunch of information that way. That didn't exist during this time. But the scriptures kind of had a built-in commentary. They were telling you, this is what I want you to focus on and pay attention to. And up to this point, the other patterns that we found have been simple. They've been patterns of where things have kind of matched each other and you kind of follow that and you find the center and then we spend a lot of time talking about what's at the center of these different chiasms in the different stories. But this one, whew, this one is intricate. Every pair matters. Like it's telling a big story. It's not just incidental that they're connected. There are pairs that are chiasms. Like, the pair is a chiasm. It's a chiasm within a chiasm. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And here's the, here's the thought I had. If I do this right, it would, be, it would take us weeks to get through, and it would feel like we were dissecting a poem. I mean, we'd have to go that slow, put all this stuff together, so that you could figure this thing out. So here's what I'm going to do instead. Because we're at Roses Are Red right? So the chances that that's going to work really well is nil. So out on the info center, I've got a little sheet out there that has all the pairs, and it gives you everything that you need to do to consider. It starts the conversation. I'm scratching the surface. But you can find the pairs in here, and you can follow through and understand, man, this, is, this was really complex. I, I believe God inspired the writing of this text. It's so complex, so intricate, so amazing what's being communicated by this technique that you should go and see what happens with it. It's pretty cool. 
But let me give you one example. I'll give you one example, and then we're going to get to the center. Because there was a purpose for all of that intricacy. And that was to make sure that we focused on something in the middle of this text that was of value. But let me give you one of the pairs. So I want to start um, with a pair found, uh, the first part of the pair is found in Genesis 5. And it says this, No longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham. And then he mentions that I'm going to make you the father of nations. So this is the series, Abram to Abraham. This is where God changes his name. And at this point in the story, it's kind of odd that he's saying you're going to be the father of nations because he has one son. And it's not with his wife. Because he couldn't figure out how in the world God could possibly fulfill his promise to him, he agreed with his wife that he would impregnate one of the servant girls. And it has turned into a mess. It's caused all kinds of frictions and jealousy in the family. Things are not going well. But God looks at him and says, what I see in you is the reality. You're going to be a father of nations. So I'm changing your name to being father of multitudes. The, the combining pair with it is 1715. God also said to Abraham, also for your wife Sarai, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. Now, this is, this is where it gets kind of fun and fascinating. God changed both of their names by using one letter. He inserted one letter into both names. I want to put God's um, Hebrew name up on the screen. This is Yahweh in Hebrew. And, uh, and the last letter in this name was the one that got inserted. But be careful because they don't read the same as we do. They read going this way. Okay? So this is the last letter in God's name. And that letter, when you pronounce it, sounds like a breath sound. Can you just exhale a little bit and listen to your breath go up? Just that. That's the kind of sound that you would make at the end of this. What I love, what I love about this idea is that God... Um, has our very breath in his name, and then he takes his very breath and he inserts it into their name. And basically, he looks at them and says, I'm changing your reality because I'm going to be with you. I'm breathing life into your story. It's different than what you see it as. In fact, here's the, here's the thing that you should know, Abraham and Sarah. My view of your reality is more true than your view of your reality. And so I'm going to change how you even talk about yourself in light of how I see you. Listen, this, that's big stuff. Do you understand we could spend the rest of the morning talking about that? Because if I, would, if I would put a finger on some universal truth that I see happening in a lot of people's lives, I would tell you that most of us have a problem believing that God's take on our lives is more true than our take on our lives. Some of us value our opinion far more than God's, and we think highly of ourselves. Some of us value our opinion far more than God's, and we think lowly of ourselves. And it doesn't matter what he says, we're going to believe. God looked at these two people and said, I know you have one son. I know you're both older. But my view of you 
is more about reality than yours. So change your name. As long as I'm breathing, it's different. It's different. This is the kind of stuff that's found in every one of these other pairs. There's seven pairs that all lead up to this kind of stuff. And I, I love it because I think there's something valuable there for us to all process and think about. I do really think that God cares deeply about who we are and how he breathes life into us. And just in case you're wondering, is that really true for us too? Can I show you something that Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter? This is about followers of Jesus. He said, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I'm trying to remake you, renew you, redo you, just like I did with Abraham and Sarah. If you would let me breathe new life into you, I could remake your story. It could be different. The same thing is going on. For you and I, right now, starts with this idea that I would give you a different reality one that's more true than the one that you understand is a part of who we are. Love this, love this kind of stuff. But if we were to go back to the text and we, were to, we would come to two verses at the center of this text that the writer wanted to make sure we paused on and thought about. Verses 9. They're a pair. It's not just one idea. It's two that make up the center of this chiasm. Let me read them to you. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my commandment, my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant. You are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. <laughs> um... Like, controversy, uncomfortable, run away, run away. Like, let's not talk about that. That's difficult. Can I, can I just offer this real quick? Just real quick. This is not our culture. And when you judge their culture without understanding why they're doing it, you could miss. There is something significant going on if God, in all of his wisdom, um, inspired somebody to write this in such a way to lead for us to focus and go, this is what I need to focus on? Is this idea of circumcision? Look, if that's happening, we should probably pay attention. I, I imagine um, that what we're seeing here is the details of the suzerain vassal covenant. You're seeing one side of it. This is what I want you as the vassal to do. I'm going to obligate myself to do certain things, but I'm going to ask you to do something very specific. And God is writing down a social contract between him and Abraham's descendants. Now, most social contracts, I, I think they're unwritten. So over vacation back in April um, with my family, we played uh, Monopoly together, and there is a love-hate relationship in that um, game with my family. I enjoy playing it, 
and some of them do not enjoy playing it, and that's because we aggressively buy up all the properties, which then leaves negotiation for you to get the right kind of pairs. And it's in that negotiation process where everything goes off. Oh, man, it gets crazy. Because somebody tends to make a, uh, an agreement, tend to be in on the one who's making the agreement. And everybody else goes nuts. They go nuts. And they start complaining about how that's not fair to the game. You can't possibly make that kind of trade. What do you do? Fantastic as it's going on. There will be some point in the game, I promise you this will happen. My wife will say, <laughs> my wife will say, remember, we all love each other right now. Right? We do not right now. Like, we're playing by the rules. And what they're upset about, what they're upset about is that there is somehow some unwritten social contract that says every everybody. I don't believe that. <laughs> and, so, and, so I go, and so I'm making trades, and I'm, I'm getting hotels up, and they're getting all upset. There will be some point in the end on one of my kids' things, and she could, do, she, like, she could pay him money, mortgage a little thing. She just hands him everything. Like, here's all my property. Here's my money. Help defeat the evil man who's now running the board, right? And, and so... This thing will go on, like the game will end, and we'll hear about it for the next four days as they complain about how unfair that game was. Why? A social contract had been violated. That's what God's writing down. It's like, I'm, there's nothing that you're going to have to have that's unwritten. I'm going to make this as clear as it can be. What I expect from you is that you will be circumcised and your descendants. That's our agreement. It's in writing. It's clear. You know what I expect. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The thing that actually links these two, the, that helps you know that there's a pair going on here, is there's a similar verb that's used in verse 9. Um, it's to keep. You are to keep. The verb is singular. You are to keep this command. And the second time it says you are to keep this command, it's plural and it's spoken to all of his descendants. So you have this link there where I'm, I'm asking this of you and I'm asking this from everybody else and I'm making this as clear as possible that this is what I want. My goal from you is for you to be circumcised. And you read this, and you can hear Abraham going, you want me to do what? Or I think of it this way, you want me to do what? Right? I mean, he's like, you're, you're going a little too far. Why are you doing this? That's what you would think. Except this is not happening in a vacuum the idea of circumcision in the ancient world was fairly common. And you're going to want to pay attention to where it was happening and where they had run across it. Do you recall in chapter 13, where did Abraham, Abram and Sarai travel to and spend some time in Egypt, right? Egypt practiced circumstance or circumcision in a very narrow way. I'd like to tell you about it. Pharaoh was circumcised, and anybody who worked in Pharaoh's court got circumcised. 
and they were circumcised as a sign that they were devoted to serve the king or Pharaoh in this case. I'm devoting myself to do this, so I'm going to commit this act of circumcision. Now, um, we've seen in the text over and over, God loves to use images and pictures to communicate, especially in a culture that they would have understood. And I think there's no leap at all for you to understand that what was happening here was God went to Abram and said, listen, I want to change your name to Abraham. I'm going to, I'm going to make this covenant with you. And I want you to devote yourself to me. And as a sign of that, I want you to do this circumcision. As a sign for everybody around, I want them to know that you're utterly devoted in your heart to me. Period. And I want that kind of devotion from your descendants too. I am convinced that this level of circumcision that God was asking for was about a heart response from Abraham and all of his descendants. I'm looking for devotion. By the way, if we were trying to prove that, could we find anything in the scriptures that would help us see that that was what was going on? Well, let's try Deuteronomy 36. It says this, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. If you really want to live, if you want to experience the kind of life I have available for you, the reality that I see you being able to live, you'll, you'll cut out the stuff in your heart that gets in the way of your devotion to me and you'll get rid of it. You'll circumcise all of that and it'll be gone. Or how about Jeremiah chapter 9? Verse 25, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the wilderness in distant places. For all of these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. This idea that you see pop up at the center of this chiasm is a God who says, listen, I've made a promise to you. And if you go and look, you're going to find that it was twofold. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to give you land. Like, I'm, I'm going to make your name known. And I'm going to do that for your sake and for the sake of the world. I'm going to do that, but here's what I need from you. I need an outward symbol of your devotion for everybody to see. And really what I need is your devotion. Your pure, unrated devotion. You know what I think is fascinating? The vassal was required to produce the signs of the covenant whenever they were asked. And God designed this covenant in such a way that the person would walk around with it on their body. That it would be like their lifetime they would carry this as a reminder and be able to prove we have this between God and I. And all 
God wanted was their devotion, their eat, their deep and utter devotion. And so it sat at the center of that chiasm. And friends, can I just tell you, I don't think anything's changed. I think when we read in Ephesians that God's looking for us to put off the old and put on the new. What he's saying is, listen, I loved Abraham. I offered him a promise. And all I wanted was for him to respond to that love with devotion. And I'm offering you love. I did it through Jesus. And all I'm asking for is a response to that love, a level of devotion that shows up in your life where it doesn't matter what you have, you yield it. Abraham, yield your concerns about my, uh, an heir. I'm going to take care of that. Would you stop worrying about your wealth? I've got that. Would you stop? Would you trust me? And the same is true for you. What God is writing in your story, he will come to you and say that thing that you want to hold back, that career, those kids, this issue that I can't seem to get over with, like it, it has its tentacles into me, and I don't know what I'm going to do. He says, I just want your devotion. If you will give me your heart, I will create a new self for you. I will take you to the reality that I always had in mind. This all starts with God's love. And it starts with a response on ourselves to that love. It's true for Abraham and Sarah. It's true for us right now. I'm going to ask you to stand and sing about that love. And as you do, I want you to, I want you to think about this one thing. Is there anything in your heart that needs circumcised this morning? Cut out, thrown away, discarded so that you can really believe what God says about you. Will you stand and sing?